and welcome back to FinTech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson. I am the creator and publisher of the FinTech Takes newsletter. And uh, joining me uh, back together again is my friend and the publisher of FinTech Business Weekly, Jason Mikula. Jason, how are you? I am uh, doing pretty well. A little, little worse for the wear. The voice is doing a little rough, but uh, I think I can make it through the show today. And it's it's good to be back. Everyone in Vegas was very concerned that we were uh, in a fight or something. <laughs> well, I was going to say, so we both have things to atone for before we get into the, the meat of the show. Um, mine is obviously missing our one-year reunion uh, podcast live from uh, Money 2020 in Vegas. I was undetained, un un unavailable via uh, a snowstorm in Bozeman, Montana, uh, which does not excuse uh, my absence. I, I continue to feel terrible. It haunts me, Jason. So I I, I sincerely apologize. Um, I would like to give you uh, a moment to apologize as well. Um, the U.S. men's soccer team was defeated by uh, the Netherlands, um, a place that you call home now. And I would just like to give you a brief time to say whatever apologies you'd like to say as well. Yeah, it, it. I mean, it was a rough game to watch. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, go out and, and watch it at a bar here or something, but uh, my family advised me it was probably not a safe thing to do, or at least if I went to keep my mouth shut. Don't let anyone yeah. hear my accent. Uh, so yes, I, on behalf of uh, the Dutch people, I, I apologize for uh, beating the Americans in uh, the World Cup. Okay, well, thank you. We can now uh, move on. We can heal. Uh, and uh, we actually have a great uh, show lined up. We have a lot of, I think, really exciting and interesting news to talk about. So um, as per usual with this podcast, uh, Jason and I are just going to jump through some headlines from the last month or so. Um, it's been a quiet month in fintech and certainly in crypto. So we probably don't have anything super big to talk about. But um, Jason, the floor is yours. Yeah, so starting not on a crypto-related topic, you know, you. last year, you're welcome. Um, you know, last year at Money 2020, the uh, the theme I heard from VCs was, we're very bearish on consumer right now. We're really, really focused on picks and shovels or infrastructure, but a lot of the phrase picks and shovels. Um, so, I mean, looking at, you know, sort of the fundraising for the last, you know, four or six weeks, I was kind of surprised to see a lot of consumer and some SMB uh, focused fintech, particularly in the neo banking space. So recently, we've had uh, Daylight raise a 15 million round. Totem, uh, which is a neo bank for Native Americans, raise a 2.2 million pre seed. Greenwood raised a 45 million round. Uh, Novo raised 35 million. Uh, X1, which is a credit card, not a neo bank, raised uh, an additional 15 million. And it says at a 50% higher valuation. Yeah. Uh, Adam, a UK neobank, which had planned to IPO uh, this year before conditions changed, planning to raise 50 million uh, pounds next year and IPO in 2024. And uh, perhaps my favorite as a pet parent myself, for sure, a neobank for pets raised a 3 million seed round. Uh, Alex, what's happening here? Were, were all the VCs wrong last year? Neobanks are back. You know, it's a great question. I, I was struck by the um, unusual amount of funding for uh, consumer fintech as well. Um, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I think that if you break down all of these different categories, I, I think there's probably slightly different stories or reasons driving 
a lot of these different ones, right? So, I mean, just going through the list, and I will say first and foremost that uh, my feelings on these individual companies differ a bit, but I would say in general, I'm pretty happy that these companies are continuing to get money. I I sort of always feel bad when, um, you know, B2C fintech is such a hot category. It draws in a lot of new entrepreneurs who have ideas for different segments they want to serve, particularly the sort of more niche-focused neobanks that are focused on serving a, a specific sort of underserved segment of consumers, you know, personally, I want to see these companies succeed. And so I was really happy that Daylight was able to raise some additional funds. Um, Totem is a really cool concept mm-hmm. for uh, better serving Native Americans, Greenwood, obviously. So I think it's it's great. You know, I think like Daylight is a good example of one where I think their funding round was really based on investors' belief in a slight shift in strategy that they have, which is um, they've announced that they're going to be building out a service uh, to help LGBTQ consumers uh, navigate the uh, family planning and fertility process, um, which obviously for um, for LGBTQ couples, um, that's a, a in a lot of ways a much more sort of onerous process, whether it's uh, surrogacy or adoption or what have you. And there's a lot of like money involved in it. It's expensive. It has lots of like very complex information and workflows and processes that you have to follow. So it's really a good problem to be solved with a combination of software and uh, fintech. And so really what Daylight is doing is building a, a brand new product that's never really existed for that segment that can solve that sort of uh, hair on fire problem. And fintech has a component of it. Obviously, there's uh, opportunities for financing. There's opportunities for facilitating payments, maybe even for insurance. Um, But the financial services components aren't really the point. They're just sort of an add-on or an enabler. The point is solving this non-financial services problem for their customers. So I think from a pivot standpoint, that's a really good example of one that... um, is is adjusting strategy based on the idea that you know just being a neobank for a particular customer segment certainly valuable but might not be uh so uniquely valuable that you can build a very profitable business in that area and i think that's always the concern that people have had with the the sort of niche neobanking play um in other cases on the list of companies that you mentioned To be honest with you, I don't really know what's going on. Um, I wrote about X1 in my newsletter this week. And, you know, look, the product itself looks good. Uh, It looks kind of like a combination of um, the Apple card and kind of what Capital One offers and uh, sort of what Pedal does in terms of it being a uh, cash flow based underwriting process rather than a FICO score based underwriting process. But I'm shocked that they were able to raise an additional $15 million six months after raising $25 million, and that that additional money apparently was raised because investors reached out to them and wanted to offer them more money at a higher valuation, which is just, none of that makes sense in this current environment. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like, from what they said in that TechCrunch article that I read about them, that they're growing, you know, revenue is up, um, gross merchandising volume is up. But I, I would hope that a lesson we've learned in the last uh, year or two is that, particularly for lending businesses, growth by itself means nothing. And in fact, can often be a sign of danger rather than of uh, sustainable success. And until we see you know, what their cost of funding is, what their default rate is, like the other things that matter when you're building a lending business, 
I, I don't know that I feel great about that one. So I, I'm, I'd love to know what their secret was for raising money in that case. Yeah, I know. Uh, I think that's right. I mean, you would hope that at this point, VCs have, have learned that lesson where, you know, growing revenue without looking at some of these other metrics, you know, defaults, charge-offs, you know, understanding, you know, as a non-bank credit card lender, what what risks do inflation and particularly interest rate pose? You you would assume those questions got asked before they handed X1, you know, more money uh, at a higher valuation, but uh, who knows? Um, I mean, I think your points on daylight are all uh, very on point uh, as far as leaning into the differentiation. So not just being affinity play of neobank for like X ethnic group or, you know, X affinity group, but actually like building a set of features and capabilities that generate revenue that are tied to solving a problem that is yeah. unique to that segment, which I think yep. like that, that is the best case scenario for these sort of niche neobanks. I think it's a bit more promising than the sort of aspiration model of, oh, you care about the environment. So like, you're going to get our debit card. Like that feels a little bit maybe less sticky and less durable, yep. setting aside the other problems in, in aspirations business model. <laughs> yeah. Um, Totem, I thought was very interesting. I was reading uh, Alloy Labs' note on it before we hopped on this call. And I guess this shouldn't necessarily be surprising um, when I stop and think about it, but that Native Americans have the highest rate of uh, unbanked households, something like 16% of Native American households are unbanked. US-wide, so overall, it's about 5%. So you're talking like 3x higher rate of unbanked. So the idea of building a product to attempt to close that gap, sort of, I mean, leverage the opportunity of the fact that you're not competing to win those customers from some other bank if they're unbanked right. um, yep. and, you know, do some sort of social good by attempting to close that gap, I think is very interesting. Greenwood um, is doing something that actually kind of reminds me of the early days of SoFi in that they're adding a membership product uh, with physical social clubs, so mm-hmm. spaces in Atlanta, DC, LA, as well as professional networking and recruiting capabilities. Um, so that's that's interesting. I don't think it, it's to me it doesn't seem quite as compelling as what Daylight is doing. The the sort of revenue angle seems perhaps a little less durable. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's interesting, right? It's it's more than just like another debit card, another neo bank. Um, do we do we need to spend a couple of minutes on on for sure? Do you have any pets, Alex? Yes, I do. Um, and uh, interestingly, this morning after I left, my wife texted me and let me know that our dog of nine years uh, threw up all over the house, and she was cleaning cool. that. Up. So, um, if there's some kind of like I don't know uh, insurance product or just anything that would make that uh, particular experience uh, better or slightly less uh, painful. That would be lovely. But yeah, no, we, we have a dog. Um, I think the listeners should know that for sure is spelled F U R S U R E, which is uh, a wonderful pun. Um, I, I don't know, man. I was, I, I was blown away by this. Like it's not, it's not super easy to raise money at the very earliest stages anymore. Um, just based on the number of 
early stage kind of seed level uh, fintech founders that I speak to on a weekly basis. Um, and 3 million is a pretty healthy uh, uh, round of money from a seed funding perspective. And I don't know. I mean, I on the one hand, I, I sort of think I'm naturally cynical about for sure, just because it seems like the most affinity e of all of these by far, um, mm -hmm. and, and not uh, not sticky uh, in any way, really, or durable. But on the other hand, I and maybe you're better uh, off speaking this because I, I see a lot of pictures of your dog on Twitter. Um, I I do think there is very much of a sort of durable economy around pet parents. And I, there isn't really, to my knowledge, a, a bank that dominates that segment, but there's certainly a lot of money that gets spent in that segment. And so, you know, maybe it could work. Maybe there is a very large market waiting to be served there. I don't know. What did you think? So I'm I'm looking at uh, For Sure's website right now, and and this is, they've, they've got one of my uh, favorite, favorite pet peeves on here, which is the uh, FDIC insured checkbox with no context on what that means or what bank they partner with. Um, well, let's and, and you just you just said pet peeve, so um, oh yeah, that's a good. That wasn't even on purpose. Uh, that was um, good. Uh, I mean, it looks like the primary benefit is sort of points that you're earning on spending in certain pet related categories that you can then you know redeem for um, towards some sort of purchases uh, and vet care, etc. Yeah, I mean, I just I struggle to understand how a product like this can effectively displace the high rewards credit cards that are probably also in the wallet of the people in this segment, right? Like if you're that uh, millennial or I guess now like Gen Z who's maybe like, you know, single or dual income, no kids and like, you know, your pet is your child and you're, you know, taking them to the groomer and like buying them CBD gummies or whatever. Um, I feel like you're probably putting that on like a high rewards credit card and, and see less of the utility of like a essentially like a single purpose card that you're going to load money onto to, to pay bills associated with your pet. Like it feels like more work and not enough reward. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that one. Well, and it's a, it's a debit card right so you do have to yep. like load money into this specific one yeah i mean that and i guess that's the other thing that i find interesting about the design choices of neobanks sometimes from a product perspective is um i know credit cards are harder in a lot of ways right i mean you have to have uh funding lined up for them you have to manage credit risk you have to find the right partner all that kind of stuff i get that but like i would feel i would feel more bullish i think to your point on this if it was more of a credit card oriented offer because then at least you could offer even more generous rewards mm -hmm. you could um you know sort of skip the step of having to uh, have them fund the account themselves but yeah like i i doubt that even the most committed pet parents are going to make this where their direct deposit goes that seems like a bit of a stretch and if you don't have your direct deposit going there how sticky are those customers that are putting funds there right i mean then you're sort mm -hmm. of in the realm of like you know, Starbucks and sort of trying to compete for uh, a subsegment of people's funds. And yeah, I don't know. I, I would love to know the sort of in-depth rationale that the investors that gave for sure $3 million see in sort of the roadmap here. Because I, 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 I like the concept and I'm rooting for them, but I, I don't necessarily see a clear uh, path to uh, quick profitability here. Well, if uh, any investors in For Sure are uh, listening, uh, 
at Alex or me on, on Twitter and let us know what you see there. But uh, with that, should we move on to uh, our next topic? We should. Yes, indeed. So this is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, this is a very big bank topic, but it was reported in the, the Wall Street Journal uh, that uh, early warning services, um, the uh, consortium owned by seven big banks in the U.S. that, um, among other things, operates the Zelle uh, P2P payments network, uh, they are considering some new rules that will essentially reimburse uh, consumers uh, if they are scammed uh, through Zelle. So, um, you know, anyone who's been sort of paying attention over the last couple of years will know that uh, there's a lot of fraud uh, that happens in Zelle and specifically uh, a variety of different scams designed to trick uh, consumers into authorizing uh, payment transfers through Zelle. And um, there's a lot of different flavors of them. Apparently, these rules won't apply to all of those. So for example, if you uh, buy goods or services that don't end up getting delivered um, through Zelle and you use Zelle to make a payment, that type of scam or fraud won't be covered by this. Um, if you just sort of fat finger uh, as you're using and make a typo in what you send, uh, these rules won't apply to you. But if there is a social engineering scam, like they contact you and are sort of contacting you, pretending to be your bank, and they can be pretty sophisticated in the way they do this to make the scam look pretty real, and they trick you into making a payment through Zelle, and technically you authorize the payment, uh, but you actually didn't really mean to and you were tricked into doing that, these new rules would essentially mean that the uh, institution, the financial institution that receives the funds that you transferred uh, through Zelle would be responsible for returning those funds. Um, and this is a big change because until now, all of the banks uh, offering Zelle have basically taken the position that um, if you authorize the payment, and this is what is sort of the, the kind of clear regulatory guidance at the moment, if you authorize the payment, then you, the consumer, are on the hook. And of course, one of the challenges with Zelle is that it's a real-time money movement service. And so the money moves in real time, and it's very quick for the fraudster to get the money out so that it can't be recovered. And, you know, honestly, I have a lot of questions about this. I mean, I know that regulators, both the CFPB as well as others, and then just lawmakers like Elizabeth Warren have been uh, banging on this drum for a while. I think the CFPB mm -hmm. is working on new guidance that's uh, designed to help sort of nudge banks in the direction of kind of offering more protection for consumers here. So maybe this was just the the big banks behind Zelle sort of reading the writing on the wall and getting out ahead of this. But um, I don't know, I wrote in my newsletter a couple of weeks ago that it's unusual to see banks voluntarily take on more liability. Uh, normally, you have to sort of wait for you know, Visa and MasterCard to force them to, or regulators to force them to. And in this case, they're actually kind of getting a bit ahead of that. Um, and I, I I, guess we'll have to wait to see how the rules are finalized and put in place. But what were your reactions to this, Jason? Uh, I mean, I think, uh, one, it's interesting to note that um, the regulatory slash congressional scrutiny does feel very much focused on Zelle versus yeah. Cash App and Venmo and PayPal, uh, which certainly are also major fraud vectors. I mean, there's been uh, plenty of stories, particularly you know in the height of the pandemic, about fraud being executed on those platforms. My 
assumption is it's easier to lean on the banks than it is to lean on Cash App and Venmo. And that's why you see a lot of this attention focused on Zelle specifically. Um, you do make a very good point that it is, you know, incredibly rare that these institutions would sort of voluntarily uh, propose taking on additional liability. My uh, cynical nature assumes that the idea is if they move first to come up with sort of an industry proposal that is yeah. palatable to them, perhaps they head off a worse outcome uh, that, you know, Rohit Chopra comes up with at CFPB or Elizabeth Warren comes up with uh, in the Senate Banking Committee. Um, so, I mean, I, I can see uh, if they believe, and I feel like this makes sense uh, to your point, the writing's on the wall, like something is going to happen here. You know, we might as well be the ones to come up with our preferred, our most preferred version of the solution. I mean, something else I think is interesting. You know, I don't use these payment apps nearly as much as when I lived in the United States, but I do use them from time to time. And I've noticed uh, increasing friction to basically encourage me when I'm using them to verify like I am sending this to somebody that I actually know. So I've noticed that in TransferWise where it has like a pretty, excuse me, wise. I always struggle with that. Um, yeah. It has like a pretty stark disclaimer, like, you know, make sure that you're sending this to somebody that you know, like once you send it, it you know, it's no recourse, you can't get it back. Yep. Um, on Venmo recently, I was sending money to somebody who is not in my contacts and it asked me to type in their phone number to verify that I was sending it to the correct person. So it's like, I looked yep. this person up by name uh, and it was like, or, you know, type in the phone number for Camilla to make sure that it's really who you think it is. So I've noticed sort of increasing verification steps. Um, Chase for their Zelle implementation had a rather like aggressive, like two or three screens outlining, <laughs> I think it was like common types of fraud uh, and encouraging like, this is the same as handing somebody money. Like yep. it should only be to somebody that you trust, blah, blah, blah. So I think yep. you're also seeing, you know, some of sort of the preferred uh, American regulatory approach, which is like informed consent. Like if I told consumers, you know, don't do this and they did it anyway, then it's on them. Uh, and then on the other side, you have this sort of um, interbank negotiation around liability, which I mean, it's progress. Um, so I, I guess I'll uh, applaud EWS and, and the big banks for that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and I think the the interbank aspect of it will be really interesting to see exactly how they do that, right? Because one of the one of the things I've been sort of thinking about, I guess it never really occurred to me, but it's like, yeah, if if a fraudster commits uh, a scam and gets a, a consumer to unwittingly transfer the money uh, using Zelle, it's going into a bank account mm -hmm. that's by one of these banks, right? And so the thing that's kind of, I guess, was never said out loud, but that was obviously always true was that all of these fraudsters have bank accounts at these other banks that are in mm -hmm. this network, right? And they they control those networks. Uh, uh, you know, they're probably, these accounts are probably kind of man in the middle accounts where they're just a place for the money to land. And then they quickly get moved out to another account or get pulled out as cash in an ATM mm -hmm. or whatever. But I, I guess the thing I'm sort of wondering about is, will we see a lot more clamping down on the other end of these transfers? Because if you're a bank that's now having to abide by these rules, 
you know, you're going to have a much lower tolerance for accounts that maybe are being used to facilitate this activity. Like mm-hmm. before you didn't mm-hmm. have the liability. So who cares really? Like it's maybe they're committing fraud, but it's not hurting you. So why does it matter now? It's going to be, Oh, yep. You received these funds. I had to give these back to this, um, you know, other bank, your account is closed. And, um, you know, maybe we're going to add you to another uh, EWS product, uh, check systems to make mm-hmm. sure that you can add, uh, you know, any, you can't open any more accounts at any of these other banks. Um, and so I do wonder if we're going to see a little bit more aggressive activity on, on the other end, even maybe to the point of like restricting certain accounts ability to move funds out once they get money transferred to them through Zelle, mm-hmm. right? So like, if you're, I mean, let's say you're like a landlord and you're getting paid by your tenants uh, through Zelle, but you are recently set up on Zelle and the bank doesn't know you very well, maybe it becomes a little harder to get that rent payment out of your account immediately, right? Like your your tenants can make the payment in real time, which is great for them, but the money itself has a hold perhaps of a day or two in order to kind of slow down any potential risk of fraud. So I think that's the other thing to watch for. Yeah, I mean, a couple interesting points there. You just reminded me that um, Vero recently added Zelle uh, as a capability, yes. which I feel, which I feel like you wrote about. I um, did, I did. And I think one of the things they're doing, although in their case, I think it's more about, frankly, trying to discourage people from signing up because Zelle's not an inexpensive thing to offer to your customers. <laughs> no. But uh, in order to be eligible to enroll in Zelle as a Vero customer, you have to already have incoming qualifying direct deposits in the last 31 days. So that may or may not be a fraud mitigation technique versus just sort of like trying to make sure only the sort of higher LTV customers are using that capability. But your point as far as you know, beginning to add some type of heuristics or restrictions to try to mitigate you know the the who's re- the accounts that are being used to receive these funds completely makes sense i mean i remember when my identity was stolen uh it was used to open like five or six bank accounts most of them were more like fintech oriented accounts but one of them was at i believe huntington um and yeah it was exactly that like get money from spot a and then like rotate it through the network and then eventually cash it out somewhere uh, and then it's gone um, and so in addition to what you're describing, which is sort of constraints around, um, you know, who can use Zelle or maybe velocity checks or amount checks, et cetera, to detect like unusual behavior patterns. Um, you know, maybe we also see stronger KYC upfront at account opening. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I, I hope so. And I definitely think that's probably going to be one of the the things that happens, right? And um, you know, I, I also noticed the uh, Varo uh, getting into the Zelle network, which they um, they seemed very proud of, and is like a benefit of having a bank charter, I guess, is now you get to be a part of Zelle as well, which is wonderful. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the more that like fintech or digital banks sort of potentially get added into this network, the more pressure there's just going to be generally for everyone to sort of watch the front door more closely because yeah, mm-hmm. there's you're taking on more liability. You really don't want these sort of um, uh, lightly fraudulent accounts sitting in your books, ready to sort of facilitate these scams or these fraud rings that are running through the network. So no, I totally agree. Um, should we rapid fire through a couple more? 
Yeah, you know, let's get a couple more in. Okay. Okay. The next one, you know, actually, you wrote about first. Um, to be fair, uh, but I, I think I think we I, I think we both really enjoyed it. Um, listeners may or may not be familiar with a, a recently uh, launched or come out of stealth company called Telus, um, which sort of presents as a I guess high yield, uh, relatively safe savings vehicle. Um, behind the scenes, it's basically pooling customer funds to finance, uh, correct me if I get this wrong, Alex, super jumbo mortgages, and I believe specifically only in California, because that's the only market I think that they're licensed currently to originate those mortgages in. Uh, and then, you know, Telus uh, services those mortgages retains a piece of the interest for itself and passes the rest back to the, uh, I'm going to use the word depositors. Um, uh, there's another somewhat adjacent component, which is like a property management platform, which I believe the theory of the case is they use that to both source potential mortgage applicants. So sort of like a pipeline of cheaper um, you know, mortgage marketing. Uh, as well as perhaps using some of the data from that platform in underwriting these mortgages. Um, Alex, what was uh, what was your your hot take when you uh, wrote this one up? Way too complex was my hot take. Um, and the the sort of general takeaway, uh, and and Jason had a much more in depth write up on them, so you should read that as well if you haven't. But um, my general takeaway just. <laughs> <laughs> trying to parse the the product honestly i spent probably i don't know an hour on their website sort of bouncing around their uh you know um frequently asked questions and their terms of service and their different you know parts of their website trying to sort of understand the value proposition this is a very very complex setup it's basically the sort of consumer again deposits in quotation marks business which is helping consumers earn a very high yield uh on but on... it wasn't even that high though it was like four percent well oh, right like high in pre uh yeah, yeah. you know rising rate environment high but like yeah now it's more equivalent to like what you could get from lending club and their savings mm -hmm. account um but but and, and the the descriptions and i know you sort of flagged some fairly significant udap concerns across a lot of different elements of what they're doing they sort of present those that that sort of modestly high yield as being safe because it's not the stock market uh, and it's not um, crypto, but it's it's still lending. It's still based on these super jumbo mortgage loans that are being made in California. And if you sort of again parse the the amount of lending that this company has done. You know, and you sort of look at the total amount of money they've lended and how many loans they've made. They've really only made about forty loans so far in their existence in California. And I mean, that's good. That's great for them. But like, I don't know that forty loans gives me a ton of confidence that they've they've learned everything they need to learn about how to lend safely. And you know, super jumbo mortgages are probably very profitable, but also I would imagine come with more risk. And so, yeah, that that part of it was really strange. And then, of course, there's the the whole property management platform element, which ostensibly gives them the insight into their market so that they can make those loans kind of more safely. And they can maybe even use the the sort of participants on that platform as like leads either to uh, you know, sell their mortgages to, or, you know, maybe to approach for the, the deposit side of it. So 
I guess my overall takeaway was that fintech, because of the sort of modular nature of all this infrastructure we have and sort of this tool set that that we have as fintech uh, builders, it allows you to construct some very complex value propositions and business models. Uh, and technically, you can make these work in a way that you just you couldn't 20 years ago because the, the pieces weren't available. The Lego blocks just mm -hmm. weren't available. But I don't know that just because we can assemble these really complex models means that we should or that it's necessarily a good idea. And the more I sort of looked at this, the more I sort of came away from it thinking that like way too complex, way too overly built uh, and probably not a solid enough kind of core business model. What, what were your takeaways? Yeah, I mean, people who are making an investment and even if yeah. they didn't use that word, like that is what this is, okay. should generally have some degree of understanding of what it is that they're investing in. And this is like a very broad principle, right? You could apply it to crypto and plenty of other things as well. But I don't think any, I mean, you and I probably spent an hour or two or three each looking at the website to try to like actually understand what the product was doing. And frankly, even then, it's still not immediately clear because somewhere in the disclaimers, it's like the yield we're paying you is not based on the yield of the mortgage we're writing, right. but it never actually says what the yield is based on. So even you know, two industry experts looking at this, frankly, can like barely understand how all these pieces fit together in a coherent way, uh, which makes it very difficult for for you know an average consumer looking at this site or downloading the app, which I did, to sort of understand, like, what is it that's actually happening with my money when I send it to this application? Right. No, I mean, that's that's exactly right. And I, I think the last thing I would say is that there were multiple instances on the website of them saying things to the effect of, well, we've never, we've never had a problem paying out yield to yes. all investors or to our customers we've never uh we've written these loans we've never had any write-offs on any of these loans and um that is the kind of thing you say when you're new to financial services and think that that's a good thing to say not a bad thing to say but like for anyone who's been in financial services for a while like when i'm looking at a lending business i want you to tell me we've had losses, we've had multiple vintages of loans, we've refined mm -hmm. the model, we've been through this part of the credit cycle, we've been through this other part of the credit cycle, we've been in a low rate environment, a high rate environment, we've lended across multiple different markets, like we've seen stuff. You know, it's mm -hmm. like that that insurance commercial, we, we cover stuff because we've seen a lot of stuff. Like that's what you want lenders to say. Mm -hmm. And the, the investing side, like I don't, I don't want someone trying to get me to deposit money with them and say, we've never ever had a problem, um, you know, returning the money to people when they ask for it back. Like, that's just a very, very basic thing that if you're going to sort of present what you're doing as a safe place to keep your money, you know, what I, I don't like if my bank that I have a savings account with said that to me or put that on their website or sent me an email saying, yeah, don't worry, you're totally going to get your money back. Like I would immediately pull my money out of that. So I think that that sort of immaturity uh, is the other thing that sort of jumped out to me. Um, I, I just like to see a lot more seasoning before I feel like this mm -hmm. is a trustworthy model. All right. You want to get us on to our next one? Yes, sir. So um, the last one that we wanted to hit uh, as a 
sort of main story for the last month, relatively recent, uh, J.G. Wentworth, uh, who you may know from their commercials, uh, talking about how they can get you cash now in exchange for your annuity or uh, the payments that you are getting from a uh, lawsuit or legal action. Um, they recently bought a uh, fintech company, Stilt, uh, who again, listeners may be familiar with. Stilt was a uh, personal lending company uh, that also had sort of a lending as a service infrastructure company called Onbo. Um, they were sort of focused, I think, generally speaking, on serving uh, sort of immigrants and being able to sort of underwrite uh, that sort of underserved segment within the U.S. Um, I'll be honest with you, Jason, I don't really know what this means. <laughs> uh, I think that um, it caught me certainly by surprise. J.G. Wentworth was not a acquirer that I had on my bingo card list mm -hmm. of tech acquisitions either this year or in 2023. Um, you know, looking at the press release, my sort of reading between the lines analysis would be that um, J.G. Wentworth is actually probably more interested in the data sets that Stilt has and the data that it has on its existing portfolio of customers and sort of feeding that data into J.G. Wentworth's existing database of customers and sort of using that as a, a launch pad for apparently J.G. Wentworth getting into its own personal lending business, which it's planning to launch next year and will initially be focused on uh, sort of debt uh, restructuring loans. But I, I don't know. Did you have any more coherent take on this? This one completely caught me by surprise. Um, yeah, I was surprised. Um, I think I came across it before that press release because the uh, still website started redirecting to JG Wentworth. I just started hearing the jingle um, in my head. There, there are no such jingles on Dutch TV. I'm, I'm sorry to tell you guys this. Um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly an unexpected acquisition. You know, I think the data set could be one component. Um, also, I mean, it could just be the lending licenses. I want to say that Stilt had something like 30-ish state-level lending licenses. You know, the interesting thing about J.G. Wentworth's business, um, which I'm embarrassed to say I actually know like a reasonable amount of, about structured settlement um, financing, um, is, you know, they, I don't know if they still do this, but they ran a massive amount of TV commercials, but their conversion rate from somebody who sees that and picks up the phone to actually like a closed deal that generates revenue for JG Wentworth is like tiny, 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 tiny low. You know, most of those users see get cash now and call, and they're just totally not qualified. So they're generating a lot of unqualified leads that they're not doing very much with. If you look at their site, um, they have some sort of like debt relief program, which sounds vaguely, uh, hopefully not too sketchy. You can see how adding in an unsecured lending component uh, would be a good additional way to try to monetize the marketing dollars they're already spending. So yeah, yep. my, my best guess is they're spending a lot of money on marketing. Uh, I believe at some point in time, maybe they were diverting people who didn't qualify, qualify for their product, so sort of selling it as leads to other lenders. And with the, you know, the pickup of Stilts licenses, they can do that in-house um, and, and better monetize, you know, the money they're already spending to, to drive customers to their site, to their phone line. 
Yep. No, that, uh, that sounds right to me. I think that's, I think that's the right analysis. And, um, I think to, to a broader point that you made, um, this is going to be a, uh, first in a long line of fintech acquisitions that I think we're going to see, uh, and buckle up because there might be some weird ones in there. I think, I think a lot of fintech companies are looking for sort of any exit off the highway they can get to. And some of them might be a little unusual, uh, relative to what we're used to. Uh, all right. One one more quick one before we uh, get to Can't Let It Go. I know that yeah. everyone is probably sick to death of hearing about FTX and BlockFi. Uh, I actually listened to the very long two-hour interview with SBF uh, that he did, I think, with the Blocks podcast on my way back from the airport today. Um, it did seem a little crazy because he seemed to have uh, perhaps intentionally no idea what was happening at any of the businesses that he purported to run, which is like slightly nuts. Uh, but so Alex and I are going to pick kind of like one crazy element of the story that is our sort of favorite takeaway so far. Uh, Alex, why don't uh, you go first? Okay, so mine is very simple. Um, and this applies to uh, FTX uh, in a massive way, but it also applies to like the sort of larger crypto ecosystem. I was blown away by the number of uh, VC investments that FTX and Alameda made. Uh, like if you look at like their balance sheet and like trying to somehow suss out where all these billions of dollars went, a not insignificant portion of them went into uh, VC investments, uh, into crypto companies, into fintech companies, into companies I've never heard of that don't really maybe even seem to super duper exist. And obviously FTX was incredibly sloppy with the accounting. Apparently uh, the folks who are trying to sort of work their way through the bankruptcy process are actually like Googling uh, to find press releases of where FTX announced uh, VC investments they made because they didn't keep any track of it. But I think like largely speaking, my takeaway was just that like VC investments have made their way into the sort of normal operations of companies in a way that I think is totally bizarre and kind of under undercovered, right? Like, why should we think that it's normal for any company that's not a for-purpose investment company to be making VC investments? Like, I, I think that we sort of all got kind of brainwashed into that a little bit over the last, you know, two to three years, because there was so much money flowing into fintech and flowing into crypto and of course, everyone should be making VC investments. But like the reality is these are all illiquid investments with an incredibly long uh, timetable for mm -hmm. a payout that probably won't come if you were being honest in terms of the level of success. Like this is not a space for tourists or for amateurs. Obviously, FTX was run by some incredible amateurs. Um, but even for ones that are a little bit more professional, I don't really think that like this level of VC investing makes sense for anyone except for VCs. And that, that was kind of my biggest takeaway from the FTX thing that I thought was just bizarre. Yeah, I mean, my, I mean, I, I wrote a little bit about some of my thoughts uh, in recent newsletter as far as like traditional banking systems interface with FTX BlockFi. I mean, I think when we're thinking about, you know, regulators and, you know, quote unquote, did they do their job? In this case, I think the banking regulators did do their job pretty effectively. If the job was make sure that some crypto blow up, you know, doesn't metastasize into the TradFi banking system, you know, they were successful. You know, yep. FTX collapsed. 
BlockFi collapsed, like, yes, there are some anxieties and in rumors, which I would argue are unfounded and inaccurate floating around. Um, but the banking regulators did their job by keeping sort of more or less a bright line between crypto and, you know, normal banking world. And that kept the banking infrastructure safe. On the flip side, I mean, the failure would seem to be in the securities regulators whose job is investor protection. You know, that has been an abysmal failure. But I'd say like, you know, for for people sort of talking writ large about like regulators, like the banking regulators did what they were supposed to do and did it, I would say, with a high degree of success, given the amount, you know, the sheer scale of uh, the fallout from FTX, BlockFi, and, you know, whatever the next couple of dominoes are that are going to fall um, are going to be. So, I mean, that, you know, I think is is sort of my, like, one little caveat I want to pick out from this story right now. Yeah, no, that uh, that makes sense. I do think, to your point, there will be a couple of um, little kind of dominoes that get tipped over that uh, maybe aren't ideal. I know BlockFi has some... Um, you know, relationships around credit cards and other things they were doing that will be a little bit uh, challenging to sort of untangle. But I think in general, you're right. I mean, the the system held up well, Evolve doesn't have a liquidity crisis, and that's a credit to banking regulators. Indeed. With that, should we get to our uh, can't let it go? Yeah, let's do it. Why don't you go first? All right. So my can't let it go, also crypto related, I apologize. Uh, I got a got an email for a product that launched uh, this week, Ledger Stacks, um, loudly proclaiming it's from the like founder or inventor of the iPod. Uh, it's basically a small uh, kind of digital device, kind of iPod-ish size and shaped, um, that is a uh, offline storage for all of your cryptos and NFTs. Um, so that you can, you know, keep them safe from the BlockFi and FTX collapses of the world. I uh, watched the sizzle reel. I mean, it, it again, it's basically a glorified hard drive that has like a little UI so you can see, I guess, what your crypto and NFT balances are. Um, the description does clarify that it has integrated magnets, uh, which make them easily stackable for those who own multiple devices, uh, as well as a curved e-ink spine so you can see what's inside like a book on a shelf. So oh just pause for a minute and think about like, I don't know, centuries or millennia of like banking getting to where it is today. And crypto solution is put all your assets in a glorified hard drive on your shelf and Hope you don't lose it or your house doesn't burn down. Oh, that is my, that's, that's what I can't let go of uh, this month. Do you want one for Christmas? I, I, it's not on my list, but, but maybe it is on yours. Well, I mean, I, I kind of think it's a good FinTech takes merch idea, right? Like um, if you're, you like, get branded, you could get a branded one. Yeah. Yeah. Like let's just put FinTech takes on the outside of that thing. No, I mean, so your rant actually feeds directly into mine. Uh, I have a slightly broader rant, but it, it definitely relates, which is, in the fallout of FTX, um, there is one strain of thought within the crypto ecosystem that I'm finding a little frustrating, which is um, people basically using the collapse of FTX as proof that um, 
the future needs to be all about decentralized finance and DeFi mm. and DeFi didn't fail and uh, DeFi protocols are over uh, collateralized and they automatically liquidate uh, people who have bad trades and there's no sentimentality, you know, code is law, it's all just governed by smart contracts. This needs to be the future. And I find that to be a super duper frustrating framing for this whole discussion because the way that it's being framed up is you have two choices. You can either um, have all of your money stolen by some centralized company, uh, or you can rely on decentralized protocols governed by smart contracts that you should personally yourself audit, because that's the only way to trust them, and then move your funds, uh, to your point, about into cold wallets that sit on your shelf that are stackable using magnets, and that you have the keys to, and only you have the keys to, and make sure you don't lose those keys and if something happens to me, well, then all of our money is gone. And that's really the way it is. I, I hate that. I absolutely hate that framing. Like, why don't we just have centralized companies that don't steal our money or gamble it all away on losses because we have civil servants that we pay with our taxes to supervise and regulate those centralized companies. And everyone just sort of behaves themselves and sort of scratches out a reasonable amount of profit. Like, is that possible? And the way that I know that it actually is possible is that that's what banks are. And I don't know, I, I'm finding this sort of duality of, well, you either have centralized companies that gamble and steal all your money, or we can go into a totally decentralized future. And hopefully the creator of the iPod creates nice hardware for us to manage that decentralized future. Like, no, I, I don't accept that framing. That framing is super frustrating. I um, do not disagree. <laughs> Awesome. Well, um, we will leave it there. Jason, as always, thank you so much. Again, I apologize for missing our last podcast. Uh, Jason, as you all heard, apologized for the US's failure to advance, but we hope everyone enjoys the continuing World Cup games and uh, the holiday season coming up. And uh, Jason will check back in roughly around the new year. Yeah, we'll see you guys in 2023.